So what does the actual data have to say about whether or not COVID-19 will permit us to have a college football season this fall? Kyle Lamb is a Buckeye fan, but also has done some phenomenal research on this. And he's going to join us next on a very special edition of Michigan Podcast. But there's going to be one team that's going to play solely as a team. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team, the team, the team. Looks deep for Anthony Cook. Waits for it. Nip This is no time for that. In the pocket and a sack. Tim Jamison. Brady gets terrific. Throws it. And a touchdown night again. Schultz just before Brazil got it. And a leaping interception by Woodson. Harbaugh back to throw over the middle. Caught by Kohler at the five on his feet. Touchdown, Michigan. On its way. It's good. He's 5'7", 179 pounds, a junior at Michigan. But Jamie Morris packs a wallop, and he delivers for Bo Schindler. And here's your first play. Pressure coming. It is Glenn Steele, number 81, who fought his way through the traffic. Option. And Robinson calls his own number, and he's going to score. Oh, an easy touchdown for Robinson and Michigan. championship again because we're going to play as a team and when we play as a team and the old season is over you and I know it's going to be Michigan again Michigan want to thank all of you who have been supporting us on Patreon these last few years here on Michigan Podcast. And for those of you that ask us every now and then, hey, what can we do to help uh, support what you guys are doing and help it to grow? Well, supporting us on Patreon is a big way you can do that. Patreon.com slash Michigan Podcast. And as you can see, when you become a $5 a month uh, subscriber and supporter or more, you get uh, as well exclusive content that we publish just for you on our Patreon page, including a lot of the stuff that I do with sports handicapping as legalization goes wider throughout the country. In fact, you can see uh, I put up just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the notes uh, for NFL win totals, looking at the schedule release. So a lot more where that came from. If you want to support us at patreon.com slash Michigan podcast. Go blue. Welcome to a special edition of Michigan podcast. I am Steve Dace. If anything good comes from the pandemic that we are still trying to work our way through, perhaps this episode will be evidence of it because we are really going to see the lion lay down with the lamb this week. I am joined by Kyle Lamb of Locked On Buckeyes. And if you're an Ohio State fan, you are, he is no stranger to you. 
But the virus is truly making for some strange bedfellows because Kyle and I have found ourselves on the right side of the data mine over the last few months. And now I feel like we're at the all-in moment here, to use a poker term. This is the all-in moment. We are now testing upwards of uh, 600,000 people a day in the country. We're now giving tests to young people, millennials, athletes that we would have told you couldn't get a test a month or two or even three months ago because we had to prioritize testing the most vulnerable. We have a surge in cases, um, not necessarily a massive surge, though, in hospitalizations and deaths. Is that because they haven't caught up to the new cases? It sort of feels like now a lot of the things that we have been told the past few months are about to come to a head when we reach this new layer of data that we're about to get exposed to. And Kyle, you're here to help us to make sense of it, brother. How are you? I'm good, man. This is kind of reminds me of the ESPN commercial. Without sports, this would be beautiful, right? <laughs> right. Right. There you go. There you go. So a little bit of your background for people that don't know that, you know, I try to keep the two things separate. One of the reasons I do this is so I can have a life outside of politics so it doesn't consume me. But one of the things I do for a living full time is data analysis. Often it is in the political arena. And so I started doing the data analysis on this virus very early because it went alongside of my day job and found that the initial math on the Imperial College survey and several of the other things that we were sold back in March, the math uh, in those algorithms that we were being sold there did not add up. I was called nuts, crazy, insane. And that was just from my own listeners and viewers. All right. And then ended up being proven completely correct about that, not because I'm smarter, but because these things were all dumb or dishonest. But now we're in a new layer of this. And I have followed your research very closely over the last couple of weeks. What's your background? What, what, what took the locked on Buckeyes guy here uh, into becoming the data an analyst on this? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I get that a lot. It's like, well, why are you the, you know, for lack of a better term expert? And, and I'm not really an expert. I'm just a guy that's into numbers. Uh, I've been doing freelance research and freelance writing for a long, long time. Most of my adult life, I've done research for, for gamblers, for journalists, for uh, companies. Uh, so I'm kind of a data guy as well as being a podcasting guy. And, and just early on back in March, you know, I just saw you know, I was hearing the hysteria, hearing the craze, the fear in people. And I'm like, and just looking at the trends that were coming out of Italy, especially early on in Italy's epidemic curve. And I'm just like, you know, the based on the data we're seeing here, I'm like, I'm not saying this isn't bad, but it's not it's not quite to the level it's being made out to be because we were seeing 95 percent of the deaths coming from over 50. Most of those being with comorbidities. I'm just like, if you extrapolate the data it's not matching the early estimates of millions of Americans dying. And that's what we were hearing early on. So I just, it just kind of motivated me to keep up with it. And I started looking at climate data, started looking at, uh, you know, latitude, longitude, especially latitude, you know, being further North, just various things with this. And it just like, it, it didn't seem to me early on that it was going to be as bad as being made out to be. And that's not to say it's not serious and that people aren't at risk, but it's just, it didn't match. And so I've, being a data guy, I've just been crunching the numbers ever since. And the more I got into it, I've had other opportunities to, uh, you know, I can't I can't say out loud because I've got an NDA, but I do research for a publication. Uh, so I've just been really diving into the numbers since then. I think that we are in the midst of a second wave. I'm not talking about the virus. I'm talking about the public policy battle surrounding the virus. 
And the pattern we went through in March, you had these uh, doomsday uh, prophecies at Imperial College, which Oxford University came out a week after that and called BS on that and said, why are we listening to this? It's garbage. And now everybody agrees it's garbage. After that, we inherited the manual of the IHME model from the University of Washington. And I was fascinated to see Stanford University, you know, you go to Washington when you can't get into Stanford, right? Uh, Stanford's a top five university in America and to see so many of their scientists come out and call BS on the University of Washington model and yet we governed in all 50 states by those projections to some degree until it became pretty obvious that they were way, 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 way off. And you had people in both political parties now, including Governor Cuomo in New York, say, hey, those models were trash and were wrong on absolutely everything. And that began the process of reopening the country in May. When it was pretty clear, we went through April and these models did not come anything close to fruition. We began as a country to largely begin some form of reopening in May, some places more aggressively than others. Well, now we're on this second wave because with reopening now, we have, well, we had a lot of uh, people with dual citizenship in Mexico who have a right to come home. And now we're letting them come home, but they're coming from a country where 49% of the, the testing that has been done down there have come back as positive. Now we've got all these young people that have been, that weren't getting tested before. You know, my own daughter is 19. Uh, she had, she was sick and went to the clinic when she tested negative for strep. They gave her a COVID test. Kyle, you and I both know there's no way a walk-in clinic would have given a 19 year old girl a COVID test anywhere in America two or three months ago, maybe even not even two or three weeks ago. We are testing everything that moves right now. All right. Anybody that goes to a hospital for anything is getting tested right now. And so that's why I think we're at a moment of truth here because the rest of the world has been far quicker to reopen than we have been. You know, you and I are big sports guys. If you're in Germany, which had a draconian lockdown, you've been watching pro basketball and pro soccer for several weeks. If you're in the UK, which had a very draconian lockdown, you've been watching Premier League soccer every night for several weeks. South Korea never did a lockdown. Their baseball season's been going pretty much as normal, just without fans. Uh, all over the Spain, which had the worst breakout other than Italy, maybe other, other than Wuhan, China itself, Pro basketball is back in Spain. So all these other countries are rapidly getting back to normal. We seem, particularly from the sports arena, to be pushing back on this. And, and that's why I think, Kyle, that we're at a moment of truth here. Because now we're testing, you know, the initial wave, 43% of all deaths in America were at a nursing home, where only 0.6% of Americans live. Well, now we're testing all these non-traditionally vulnerable demographics, all these athletes coming back to campus at Ohio State, Michigan. I think the Big Ten's the only league where every school has all of their football players back on campus now. All these guys are getting tested all of the time. We're going to do this with the NBA. 302 players tested. 16 were positive. One is reporting symptoms. Spencer Dinwiddie, I think, is the guy that is saying he feels symptomatic. Um, when, when we start testing all these millennials, and if, if in the next week or two, if, 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 you know, the whole country's not New York City and our morgues are not overrun, what are we going to say then, Kyle? What are we going to say? That, that's why I kind of think this is the moment of truth right now. And, and sports has kind of brought this out. But what are your thoughts? It is. You, you hit the nail on the head. When you look at countries that locked down versus didn't lock down, you know what the biggest difference is? It's, it's not the lockdown. We have mobility data to measure how the lockdowns worked in various countries. And there's not much of a difference. The biggest difference, if you look at Germany and some other European countries, their case fatality ratio, meaning how many deaths to confirmed cases, is actually proportionate 
to the number of deaths in nursing homes because nursing homes have made up over half of the deaths in in the entire world, not just our country, the entire world. For example, Sweden, which famously did not do a lockdown and practice good old fashioned herd immunity. Their system was was overseen by the founding director of the European Infectious Disease Center. Right. And you have seen their cliff has just collapsed right now that they've kind of gotten close to herd immunity as a culture yet they still had all the same problems in the nursing homes that the rest of the world had as well. It didn't seem to matter whether you locked down or not. Uh, if you were within a year of dying, this this pandemic, sadly, I mean, it had you in its crosshairs no matter where you were in the world. That's exactly right. Over 50 percent of the global, not just the United States, 50 percent of the global deaths or I'm sorry, 95% of the global deaths are over 50 years old, uh, something like 85% over 65, and like I said, over half are nursing homes. The, you mentioned the Sweden, uh, Sweden, their National Institute of Health director actually said, look, where we went wrong is we didn't protect the nursing homes well enough. And, and that's what we're finding in New York, where Cuomo sent sick patients back into nursing homes. And I'm not playing politics here. I'm just saying. Yeah, he did that, it. There were there that, were five Democratic governors that did it and one Republican governor in Massachusetts. Six governors did that. And they've made up like like something like half of the deaths in all of America were the six states that made those decisions. Right. And so I said this the other day on, on my Twitter timeline. I said, it's it's amazing to me that we know who this is targeting and we're worried about micromanaging the 95% that are not at high risk instead of figuring out how to protect the 5% that are. Like we need to go back to figuring out how do we protect that five to 10% of the population that might be at risk from this because the rest of everybody else, like worrying about micromanaging them is missing the point. We have the data now, we know who is at risk. Let's put our efforts into worrying about those people. So here's what the questions that I get a lot. Hey, I'm told in Texas their hospitals are overrun, yet the Texas Hospital Association said a couple days ago that in uh, in in Dallas or I'm sorry, in Houston, 12.9 percent of hospitalizations were covid in Austin. It was 10 percent yesterday in Houston. A hospital spokesperson there said that they are at 95 percent capacity, but that's exactly where they were one year ago at this time and that their ICUs are almost always at 80 to 90 percent capacity. I did. I went and looked it up yesterday. 5,427 people were in the hospital in Texas with COVID-19. That's out of 30 million people. There's 666 people in ICU in Arizona in a state of almost 8 million people. And yet we're being told that this is, you know, way out of control. Anthony Fauci saying today there could be 100,000 new cases a day, which I actually think if that's the case, that's good news because typically the more infectious something is, right, the less lethal it is. But, but what do you see? What's the big picture? What's what's truth and what's fiction right now? You hit on a big important point here, and this is what people are missing when they're concentrating on the the spike in hospitalizations. A lot of it had to do with people coming back for procedures that got delayed a month or two ago, and this is happening in Texas, as you said. Six percent of all of the beds occupied right now is from COVID nineteen, and that includes all of the people that came into the hospital got admitted for something other than COVID-19, got tested because all inpatients are being tested. So the 6% represents everybody that is there for any reason that happens to have COVID-19. The epidemic threshold for the flu and and pneumonia by the CDC is 7.2%. So that's actually a percent lower than the epidemic threshold, even if you look at Texas. But we know Arizona is a good example. Arizona's COVID dashboard has less than 50% of their hospitalizations actually coming into the hospital with COVID or influenza-like illness. 
That means that over 50% of their hospitalizations that have COVID and are being counted as COVID are actually there for some other reason. Mm -hmm. So when you look at these numbers, yeah, they look scary and they're jumping in some places, mostly in South the United States. But the truth is there is a lot of misleading accounting going on right now. So you follow the trend line. From about April 15th to June 15th, you saw overall cases and everything in this country. It looked like we had flattened the curve, right? Right. Now, since June 15th, it looks like we have not. Right. What has happened in the country since June 15th to alter that? Because here's the other issue we have. This is a SARS-2 coronavirus. It is a respiratory virus. In general, respiratory viruses do not like warm weather. If you go back and watch and, and, and research what happened with the first SARS outbreak, it literally just died out on its own by the end of August. By the end of August, the WHO, the World Health Organization, had lifted all of the various travel uh, bans around the world. Taiwan was the last one lifted, I, lifted, I believe. They spent 12 years trying to find um, a vaccine. They never could and just gave up because it was gone and and they just couldn't bring it to market before the virus mutated anyway. So we're we're in the warmer weather. Everybody wants to one side says it's all the it's all the reopenings. Well, Texas has been reopened. I was just in Texas. Uh the middle of May. It was it was reopened way before June 15th. I was in Southern California the first weekend that it reopened, which was just a couple of weeks ago. Almost no one was out. My Uber driver told me that uh, they're operating statewide at 20% capacity uh, and everyone wore masks everywhere you went. We went to dinner on a Friday night in Burbank, California at seven o'clock with no weight and walked right in. Okay. That like doesn't happen. All right. So I went to LAX twice. No one was there. And, and by the way, California did a massive lockdown. Texas did a eh, kind of a half-assed one and then backed out after a couple of weeks. So what else changed from June 15th on? Was it the protests? Was it all the massive rallies? Something in the trend line changed. Or, we, or did we just expand testing because the caseload was so low that we thought, hey, we can go to a new layer of people now just to see how acute and widespread this is? Or is it a combination of factors, Kyle? I think it's a combination. I think there's a lot of nuance to this. And let me state for the record, I am not saying that there's no additional spread going on. I think there's a little bit of additional spread. And the big reason I think that there is, is th it, it follows a very similar path to Mexico right now. And not just Mexico, but some countries in the Middle East and, and even Africa to, to a lesser extent, along the same parallel, the, the 28 to 35 degree parallel latitude line, we're seeing a little bit of a rise in cases all across that line. So I think the southern states are seeing a little extra spread because of that. But I will caution that doesn't mean the hospitalizations in, in reality are going up. It doesn't mean the deaths are going up because we could be seeing a weakened virus on top of that. So I think that there is some additional spread. Meaning that, meaning that the more viruses tend to in, spread within a community, the weaker they tend to get. When they run into more and more immune systems and get spread around a community, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, it doesn't mean the viral load is as strong as it was mm -hmm. in April. So it's not going to kill as many people, even if it's spreading more. But I, th I think there is some spread. But I also think because of the double counting, because of the focus testing, the mass testing, we are testing a lot of migrant worker camps, we're testing hospitals, we're testing prisons, nursing homes. When you look at all of the concentrated testing on top of you know, counting everybody that comes in with hospitalizations, uh, we're, we're finding younger people in the testing that we weren't finding before because people are going back to work and their employers are actually uh, requiring 
a negative test for them re- to return to work. So we're finding a lot of young professionals that we weren't finding before, not necessarily that they had spread more, but they were asymptomatic previously and there was no reason for them to get tested until they started going back to work. So I think all of these things are playing a fact, playing a role. I think that there is some additional spread. I don't think it's significant. I think it's just all of those factors combined have made the numbers skyrocket. So we've got players reporting back. All right, your school, Ohio State, um, angered some people by they didn't call it a pledge, but or a waiver, but a pledge basically. Um, right. Michigan isn't doing that, but has has rules of conduct that essentially you agree that you obey these rules or you're out of here. And and they're you know with mask wearing, social distancing. Now I don't know what Gene Smith has announced there in Columbus. Ward Manual here in Ann Arbor. When they attested, did the initial testing of the players when they came back on the first on the fifteenth of June, two football players tested positive. Both were asymptomatic, but two percent of the team, they did an antibody study too. They found two percent of the team had tested positive for antibodies, and no reports that any of those players even knew that they had the virus. Right. What do you think those numbers mean? And then what have you heard about what what they've done at what what they found out at Ohio State because. You know, Ann Arbor is close to Detroit, which is a densely populated urban area. But Columbus, of course, is the most densely populated urban campus probably in the entire Big Ten. So what are you hearing there? Yeah, Ohio State hasn't announced any numbers thus far. They did say that they were going to test the entire athletic department uh, football team for sure. They haven't announced any results of that. I think that's going to be kind of similar. I think we're going to see here at Ohio State in that there's definitely been uh, I think Ohio got hit less a little bit, a little bit less than Michigan. But I think also uh, the way you listen to the Ohio, Ohio uh, Governor Mike DeWine and Amy Acton, uh, previously the health director, you listen to them talk and they seem to think that we got a, a more early curve at, in Ohio, meaning there were cases in January, mm-hmm. February. March. I think it was kind of trickling along. So I think antibody and serology tests may or may not pick up some of those early cases because there is actually a finding now from some scientists that that antibodies may not linger in your system too long, but you also may not need antibodies to fight off the virus anyway. So that's another thing that we're going to find out in the future. A lot of people, a lot of people could have had it without even producing antibodies, or the antibodies didn't stick around long enough to show in the system. So that's another angle to this that we'll find in the future. Maybe more people had it than we realized, but they didn't fight it off. They weren't symptomatic. They didn't fight it off with antibodies but rather just their natural immunity with T-cells and other exposure to coronaviruses, which could could impact this as well. Clemson is saying 30 players have tested positive. LSU has, uh, I think, quarantined close to that many. One of the things that I have been waiting for is, as someone that does this full-time in his full-time job, we're, and 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 since it's been the number one issue in the country this whole year so far, I mean, I've spent a, a, a good portion of my time in my full-time work pushing back on what I like to call panic porn with the actual data that is out there. What I find fascinating, though, is that that a lot of Americans, like let's go to a state like Louisiana, a lot more people in Louisiana, no matter how they vote, know a hell of a lot more about Go Tigers, okay, than they know about coronavirus or even the election. Same thing down in South Carolina where Clemson is located. You know a lot more about the Clemson football team, the average person does, right? Than what the, you know, what the current unemployment number in America is. Throw in sports betting, throw in fantasy sports. We've got almost carnal knowledge of these teams and players in all these sports. And 
how you know the the people that have been peddling this panic porn for the last couple of months whatever their various motivations are how are they going to hide from people when i find out trevor lawrence tested positive set out two weeks and now he's back playing i'm going to know that right like i, I know when trevor lawrence spring, aggravates a hamstring and he's out three to six weeks i know what week he went out i know what week he comes back right if 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 Justin Fields tests positive at Ohio State before the first game and misses the first couple of weeks and never goes to the hospital and never shows any symptoms and he comes back in a couple of weeks and plays, every Ohio State fan on earth, Kyle, is going to know that. That's why I kind of think sports may be providing our moment of truth here because now that we're testing outside of what have been the most vulnerable demographics uh, from this virus already and we're testing the younger, the less symptomatic, the less vulnerable – and, and a lot of them, these are famous people that people are a lot more emotionally invested in sometimes in their own lives, frankly, okay? They're going to know if, a, if, if, if 30 players at LSU are all there week one for the very first game of the year, those guys, the, the fans are going to know that those guys tested positive. I guess it must be okay. You know what I'm getting at here, which is I kind of think that sports may provide the ultimate revealer. And who knows? And then maybe guys like you and I will be proven wrong. Maybe a lot of these players will go to the hospital and, and, and we'll have all kinds of you know, young athletes on intubators. I, I have a hard time believing that because that hasn't happened in any other country in the world that has already put their kids over 20 countries, already have their kids back to school, already mentioned all the other countries playing sports. But one way or the other, I think sports is going to bring some facts to light here that a lot of the American media has just chosen for whatever reasons and I have my suspicions, uh, for whatever reasons, just not to report to the average American. You can't hide that when it comes to their favorite team, Kyle. Yeah, look, we have over 10 million data points now on this in the United States alone. Okay, we, we have enough infections in this country to, to have a really good idea. And like you said, maybe that changes. Maybe something completely uh, goes off the rails from what we're looking at. But the fact of the matter is right now, under 29, you know, people can argue, is this the flu? Is this not the flu? The bottom line is this is less lethal than the flu for under 30 years old. That's just the facts. You can argue, well, this is you know, not the flu. It's like I don't care if it is or not. Under 30 years old, fewer people per 100,000 are being hospitalized than the flu. Fewer people under 30 years, years old are dying from this than the flu. That's the facts right there, okay? You can look that up. The CDC has that. The Emerging Infections Program, EIP, tracks hospitalizations. They're tracking that. You can look, go look that up for yourself. So I think we have to get to this point in the country where, yes, this is new, it's scary, we're not used to it, but we kind of have to learn to live with it until or unless there is a vaccine, okay? And we have to figure out ways to do that. And just scaring each other and trying to frighten each other, that's not helping. We need to learn how to live with it and just say, what if we have to live with this for a while? Because just locking ourselves in our, in our bunkers, that's not going to help. Let's make this even more parochial where it comes to football. Now, I am fascinated by the notion that 22 men without any facial covering at all can run around for 90 concurrent minutes on a soccer field in numerous countries around the world. And apparently all those epidemiologists and all those virologists and immunologists just hate their countrymen because they've signed off on it. Okay, in the sport of soccer, you're able to do that. But somehow we are deeply concerned that 22 men on virtually the exact same sized field, okay, with their faces totally covered by a face mask and then a mouthpiece right, for a game that is that's about 30% shorter than the average soccer match. 
somehow we're concerned that this is going to become some super spreader event that every Premier League soccer match has not proven to be, right? So what's the data tell you about this, Kyle? That's the thing. I haven't seen any sports data uh, on that as far as like soccer getting up and running again, but that is a great point. But I will tell you this right now, let's just use the home front. Okay. Let's look at the number of people that have died. You're looking at about one out of every million people under 30. Okay. I can tell you this in the NCAA from 2000 to 2017, all divisions, FBS, FCS, as well as divisions two and three, an average of two football players died every year either practicing or playing the game of football, like either dying during practice or dying during a game. Okay. Two people that's out of about 70,000 football players every year. That's one in every 35,000. So if we're looking at a a virus here, that's killing one out of every million people or or more or less than that, actually, then, I mean, look, the sport of football is more inherently dangerous than this virus right now. What are you hearing on the ground there in Columbus about where they are at um, and what are their thoughts on the coming season? I mean, as far as the, as far as playing the coming season or if they play the season, their prospects. Uh, I'm talking about, we'll talk about the prospects for the team at another time, but okay. I'm talking yeah. about this playing a season in general. What are you hearing there? Ohio state right now is still going forward as if they're going to play. Uh, they've already outlined their, uh, proposal for putting fans in the stands. Their proposal ranges from 20 to 50,000 people. The optimistic range is they hope that they can get 50,000 in there if they can do 50% occupancy. Uh, but right now they're going forward with a projection of about 30, 20 to 30,000. And and then if, if if things get better in the next two months, and then they might push it up to about 50,000. But right now, Ohio State is optimistic that they'll play. But of course, uh, they need to have opponents to play against. And if, if other schools start dropping football because of the scare going on right now, then, you know, it may correct itself one of the subplots here is the schedule both michigan and ohio state are scheduled to go out west to play key road games this year michigan at washington week one ohio state at oregon on week two i don't think there's there's much of a chance michigan is playing that game at washington week one for several different reasons one of them being to have the very first game out of the gate be where you take your team halfway across the country to the original hot spot, Seattle, Washington, for the virus, where you haven't tested your processes for any of this yet. You know what I'm saying? I just, I don't think there's much of a chance Michigan's playing that game week one. So either Michigan won't play week one or will play somebody like Western or Eastern Michigan or somebody like that instead. What about Ohio State with Oregon in week two? I mean, that, that would be a game that could potentially be two top, two top five teams, frankly. The Oregon governor first came out a couple months ago and kind of made it sound like there'd be no games played this fall. Uh, then uh, she kind of back backtracked a little bit and said, well, you know, we we're not we're still open to that, but we probably won't have crowds. So, I mean, right now, the working theory is Ohio State would play in Eugene in September. But if so, it'll probably be without any crowd in attendance. That's kind of the working theory right now. But there hasn't been a lot um, discussed about that recently. Final thing to ask you about. Let's let's one of the things I love to do is educate people so they can do this on their own. Right. Um, What are the real data points and trends and what's the trend line? How much longer? Right. Typically, there's about a three week lag in hospitalizations with this virus and symptoms showing up and then a little bit longer than that when it comes to deaths. Okay, so. What to you, this current surge in, 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 in positive tests since June 15th, what's your median date? What's your drop dead date of, hey, if we don't see anything by this point in time, then 
this is another uh, debunked piece of panic porn. What's the date our audience ought to be looking at, Kyle? Well, traditionally, hospitalizations follow within seven days of symptoms. You could you could kind of extrapolate that and say seven days after cases, hospitalizations should see a spike if they're going to. OK, so we, if, if you say the trend started 615, June 15th, we should already see a spike in hospitalizations. And we are seeing a very, very small uptick. But as I said earlier, it's hard to actually analyze that because so many people are being tested positive that may be going to the hospital for something else and they're asymptomatic. So we don't know if they're going for COVID or they're going for something else. And just Let's flesh that out for a second because you made that point earlier. Let's, let's make sure people understand. When, when you go from nobody was allowed in the hospital for three months to now anybody can go back like we did before, number one, that it's a fallacy because hospitalizations are going to go up now, number one. Right. Number two, if I go to the hospitals, uh, hospital for kidney stones and the oral pain reliever they give me doesn't do the trick and they have to keep me overnight for observation, they're going to COVID test me, right? So if they do that and I test positive, even if I'm asymptomatic, I'm in there for kidney stones, I'm, I'm in there with, uh, with COVID-19, right? So right. those are some of the factors that you're talking about that I wanted to clarify uh, from before. But finish your point. Go ahead. Yeah, so... And we should. So we are already seeing a very, very small uptick, but it's small. Like the percent of all hospital beds that are occupied in this country as of June 23rd was about 5.3 percent, which was up a tick from, I think, 5.2, 5.1%. 5 so it gone up just a little bit, but not significantly. Uh, but then there's a seven day average trend of deaths occurring after hospitalization. So that gives us basically one week to see a trend in hospitalizations. And then an additional week to see a trend in deaths. So really, if June 15th is the date that the, the the true spike started, and actually people were complaining about a spike long before that, but let's say June 15, to be conservative, is when it really started. That means this is the time now, this next week, if we don't start seeing deaths go up, and so far we're not seeing it in the trend of deaths by actual date of death that the CDC reports. Mm -hmm. Those are lagging a little bit, but we're still not seeing the percentage go up. If we don't start seeing that in the next week, then we have to start to conclude it's not going to happen. So this is the kind of the all-in moment probably when it comes to fall sports and everything else. A lot is going to be known about a week to 10 days from now is what you're telling us. That's what I think. I think in the next two weeks, it, it, with the spike we just had, another 50,000 new cases this past week over the last week, if it doesn't happen in the next week to 10 days or week to 14 days, then yeah, I, I think you have to conclude it's probably not going to happen. Kyle, where can our audience find your work uh, with Locked On Buckeyes and covering Ohio State? Yeah, so I'm actually back to uh, doing my own this fall. I'm going to be doing my own unscripted Ohio podcast, which I was doing last year and occasionally on the side with Locked On. I'll be devoting my efforts. We have several different shows. I'll be on Unscripted Ohio. You can find that on any of your platforms of choice if you're a Michigan fan and want to come listen to what the other side is saying. Uh, Unscripted Ohio, find us on any platform and we'll be talking Ohio State football and basketball this fall. Hey man, I appreciate you doing this. You, you did this for us on short notice and uh, really appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks for dropping some knowledge on us here this week on Michigan Podcast. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Steve. You bet. That's Kyle Lamb there talking the real data with COVID-19. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this special edition and it gave you a perspective maybe you're not getting in a lot of other sectors in the media. We'll be back at it again next week with a regular program. Until then, go blue.